According to Albert Einstein, the most pressing question before humanity is this. Is the universe friendly? Now, it's an odd question to ask, especially if you believe that the universe isn't anything beyond material. Matter doesn't and shouldn't really care whether it is viewed as friendly or unfriendly. After all, it is just stuff. There is something about the question that resonates, though. After all, the universe does bother to exist. Try a probability of 10 to the 123rd power, according to mathematical physicist Roger Penrose. Those are the odds you would have to bet against. That's just way too many zeros, and they are all stacked against you. The fact that the universe exists is virtually an impossibility. Still, the universe manages to beat them. And here we are today, pondering its mysteries. This little song I wrote, I hope to sing it note for note to don't worry, be happy. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things are gonna get brighter. Everything is gonna be all right, yeah. Everything is gonna be all right, man. A little happy medley for you there. You see, to anyone who has ever wished on a star, acted on a gut feel, and maybe even tossed up a prayer for the favor that tomorrow will be better than today, the initial assumption of hope comes from the universe simply just showing up. Even mere existence, reduced to its most primary limits, was extraordinary enough to be exciting. Anything is magnificent compared with nothing, according to G.K. Chesterton. Maybe even along those lines, we should lend the universe some credit that it might actually be leaning towards us. The idea that the universe is indeed friendly and will conspire for us seems to be the ultimate source of optimism in the world. To the theist who believes that the universe was created by God, the hope is anchored on the belief, or for some of us who struggle to believe, the hunch that God is indeed good and for us. What we believe about the universe, friendly versus unfriendly, what we believe about God, whether he operates from a place of love or hostility, or maybe an even worse third option, whether he's indifferent, determines how we live at a very profound level. The writer of Genesis lived in a world where there was so much confusion about God and the nature of the cosmos. To the surrounding cultures, the gods were shady and petty. You were never really sure where you stood with them. To them, the universe was birthed as a byproduct of infighting among the gods. An all-out cosmic war waged over noise that disturbed sleep. And now to be fair, noisy neighbors could be a hassle. Eventually, one of the goddesses is defeated in battle. Her dead corpse, split in half, forms the earth and the sky. The husband of the same goddess is bled out to die, and his blood is the material by which humanity is created with the sole purpose of serving the rest of the gods. You see, just like us moderns, the ancients were well acquainted with the seeming randomness of life. They too struggled having to explain indiscriminate suffering. They, just like us, grappled with the ability to be able to predict and results. Because they eventually concluded that no matter how hard you tried, you just could not control outcomes, a lesson us control freak moderns keep having to learn, 
They therefore deduced that the heart of the universe leaned heavily towards unfriendliness. To their world first, Genesis offered a counterculture view about what lies at the core of the universe, and it hasn't lost its relevance ever since. Even as it busts out of the gate, Genesis 1 makes this dramatic statement about the nature of reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim, the generic name for God in its plural form, is used here. Except that whenever the Hebrews would use it referring to the one true God, they would pair it with a verb in the singular form. They broke the rules of their grammar to let us know that the God that they are referring to is the one true God, the creator and judge of the universe. The plural form of the name is not to say that there were many gods, but it was more to ascribe greatness and power to the one God. To illustrate how this works, say you thought that I was great, you know, say you thought that I was all that. You wouldn't just call me Bebo, you would call me Bebos, which none of my friends do, by the way. Although I have craftily found a way around it by asking them to call me Bebs. <laughs> So without them knowing, they, it's as if they're ascribing me as the great one. Although one may argue that it doesn't really count if it comes from a place of ignorance, to which I would say, hey, I'll, I'll take it any way I can. The word create is a special word, bara, which some scholars say seem to mean to create out of nothing. This word seems to be exclusively used only when it refers to God. This divine creator, artist, and judge is so great and creative that the only inspiration he draws from is his own self. In other words, God needs no pig. Everything he creates is an original idea. From the get-go, Genesis asserts the idea that no, the world was not birthed accidentally by the pettiness of many gods. That randomness and meaningless is not the fabric that the universe is cut from. On the contrary, the universe permeates with purpose and meaning and it is birthed as the intentional creative act of the great creator, artist, and judge, Elohim. And then there's verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Formless and empty is this rhythmic phrase, tohu vavohu. You should say that with me, it's a bit fun. Tohu vavohu, almost like you're rapping it. This is translated waste and chaos, telling us that things were really messy. Genesis subverts the surrounding creation myth, but it doesn't deny the suffering we have in life. It does not aim to diminish our struggle in trying to make sense of the mess of life. What it is trying to do is point us to the reality that God is present even in the midst of the chaos. So close is God that His Spirit, the Ruach Elohim, which is also the breath of God, hovers over the abyss. This is a moment wrought with explosive potential, as if the chaos itself is in great anticipation waiting for Elohim to utter words and speak, Elohim does. You ready? Let there be light, and there was light.
boom. These words dagger into the darkness and everything changes. Here in the beginning, within the first two sentences of the narrative, the writer of Genesis is letting everyone know that God is not only the supreme creator of this grand world, not only did he create with intention and purpose, not only was he so powerful that all he needed to do was speak the world into existence, but the thing that punctuates this whole thing and makes it so relevant to its original listeners was that God had created something so magnificent and he created it from the chaos. This declares Elohim is the Lord over the Tohu Vavohu. To those of us who believe in the divine inspiration of Genesis, it's like God knew suffering, whether it be global or the personal kind, would be our biggest issue with him. That gloom and doom would be the only lens by which we would view the nature of reality. So instead of denying it, he addresses it by letting us know that chaos had nothing on him. And that's just the beginning. God proceeds with the creation project and at every stage takes a step back, just as an artist would pause to take in what he just made. Within the first 31 verses of Genesis, it tells us that seven times God pronounced nature to be that which is good. The original meaning of the word holy, which can be lost on us, like we often think holiness means sanitary and neat, but what it really means is to be set apart for a specific purpose. God continues on. He separates light from darkness, water from land, giving every aspect of creation meaning, purpose, and order, declaring it sacred. And then lastly, God blesses all of his creation. Revealing his desire for humanity and the rest of the world is a bearing of fruit, a flourishing of some kind. Genesis knows that we will all experience times of turmoil, seasons where we will feel like all the effort we have put in life has amounted to nothing but waste, moments of emptiness like there is an abyss overwhelming your soul, our own personal tohu vavohus. The creation narrative reminds us that the same God who is the catalytic force behind the universe it's the same God who hovers over our own personal chaos. He is never kept away. As a matter of fact, his breath hovers over you and hovers over me, willing and ready to speak life to us at any moment, if we would only invite him to. The message to its original audience and to us today, what lies at the core of reality, the center of it all, is a God who is in the habit of creating beautiful things from the mire. A God who delights in goodness. A God who gives meaning and purpose. And a God whose predisposition is to bless. A God who wants you to flourish. Is the universe a friendly place? Genesis answers with a resounding, you betcha. If you are in the middle of some kind of chaos today, if you are in your own tohu vavohu, my prayer for you is that you would know Elohim, the creator, artist, and judge, who is an expert at turning the chaos into the most glorious work of art. May the Lord bless you and keep you 
and may he make his face shine upon you and give you peace.